Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring a chapter from Supernovas, award-winning and nominee science fiction, edited and selected by Jean-Marie Stein. All the stories in this unique anthology were voted to be among the top stories of their year. We believe each would be a top story of any year. Raj Phillips' other stories are eclipsed by his psychological thriller, The Brilliant Rat in the Skull, which received a well-deserved Hugo Award nomination. In H.L. Gold's Inside Man, he dreams up brand new wrinkles on ESP no one else, including you, has ever thought of. The special quality of this work was endorsed by his colleagues when it was nominated for the Nebula Award for Best Short Story. The Encyclopedia of Science Fiction praises Lee Brackett's The Stellar Legion for its color, narrative speed, the brooding forthrightness of its protagonists, and the economy and vigor of her style so it is hardly surprising that it earned a retro Hugo Award nomination. Cordwainer Smith's Scanners Live in Vain also earned a retro Hugo nomination. Evelyn Martin's Reluctant Eve, winner of the Jules Verne Prize for Most Outstanding Achievement in the Science Fiction Field for 1956, was the first science fiction romance and is still an enthralling story today. Don Wilcox's The Voyage That Lasted 600 Years, from 1940, was the first-generation starship story and the first to incorporate the breakthrough notion of Earth developing faster-than-light ships that beat the generation ship to its destination, a worthy recipient of a retro Hugo nomination. Wherever you are on the spectrum of science fiction knowledge or fandom, you'll find hours of enthralling listening and re-listening, forgotten favorites for longtime science fiction fans, and an introductory grand tour for those new to the genre. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Supernovas. Rat in the Skull, Rog Phillips, Hugo nominee, 1959. 1. Dr. Joseph McNair was not the sort of person one would expect him to be, in the light of what happened. Indeed, it is safe to say that until the summer of 1955 he was more normal, better adjusted, than the average college professor. And we have every reason to believe that he remained so, in spite of having stepped out of his chosen field. At the age of 34, he had to his credit a college textbook on advanced calculus, an introductory physics, and 72 papers that had appeared in various journals copies of which were in neat order in a special section of the bookcase in his office at the university, and duplicate copies of which were in equally neat order in his office at home. None of these were in the field of psychology, the field in which he was shortly to become famous, or infamous. But anyone who studies the published writings of Dr. McNair must inevitably conclude that he was a competent, responsible scientist, and a firm believer in institutional research, research by teams, rather than in private research and go-it-alone secrecy, the course he eventually followed. In fact, there is every reason to believe he followed this course with the greatest of reluctance, aware of its pitfalls, and that he took every precaution that was humanly possible. 
Certainly, on that day in late August 1955, at the little cabin on the Russian River, a hundred miles upstate from the university, when Dr. McNair completed his paper on an experimental approach to the psychological phenomena of verification, he had no slightest thought of going it alone. It was mid-afternoon. His wife, Alice, was dozing on the small dock that stretched out into the water. Her slim figure tanned a smooth brown that was just a shade lighter than her hair. Their eight-year-old son, Paul, was fifty yards upstream playing with some other boys, their shouts the only sound, except for the whisper of rushing water and the sound of wind in the trees. Dr. McNair, in swim trunks, his lean, muscular body hardly tanned at all, emerged from the cabin and came out on the dock. Wake up, Alice, he said, nudging her with his foot. You have a husband again. Well, it's about time, Alice said, turning over on her back and looking up at him smiling in answer to his happy grin. He stepped over her and went out on the diving board, leaping up and down on it, higher and higher each time, in smooth coordination, then went into a one-and-a-half gainer, his body cutting into the water with a minimum of splash. His head broke the surface. He looked up at his wife and laughed in the sheer pleasure of being alive. A few swift strokes brought him to the foot of the ladder. He climbed, dripping water, to the dock, then sat down by his wife. Yep, it's done, he said. How many days of our vacation left? Two? That's time enough for me to get a little tan. Might as well make the most of it. I'm going to be working harder this winter than I ever did in my life. But I thought you said your paper was done. It is. But that's only the beginning. Instead of sending it in for publication, I'm going to submit it to the directors, with a request for facilities and personnel to conduct a line of research based on pages 27 to 32 of the paper. And you think they'll grant your request? There's no question about it, Dr. McNair said, smiling confidently. It's the most important line of research ever opened up to experimental psychology. They'll be forced to grant my request. It will put the university on the map. Alice laughed and sat up and kissed him. Maybe they won't agree with you, she said. Is it all right for me to read the paper? I wish you would, he said. Where's that son of mine? Upstream? He leaped to his feet and went to the diving board again. Better walk along the bank, Joe. The stream is too swift. Nonsense, Dr. McNair said. He made a long, shallow dive, then began swimming in a powerful crawl that took him upstream slowly. Alice stood on the dock watching him until he was lost to sight around the bend, then went into the cabin. The completed paper lay beside the typewriter. 2. Alice had her doubts. I'm not so sure the board will approve of this, she said. Dr. McNair, somewhat exasperated, said, What makes you think that? Pavlov experimented with his dog. Physiological experiments with rats, rabbits, and other animals go on all the time. There's nothing cruel about it. Just the same, Alice said. So Dr. McNair cautiously resisted the impulse to talk about his paper with his fellow professors and his most intelligent students. Instead, he merely turned his paper into the board at the earliest opportunity and kept silent, waiting for their decision. He hadn't long to wait. On the last Friday of September, he received a note requesting his presence in the boardroom at three o'clock on Monday. He rushed home after his last class and told Alice about it. Let's hope their decision is favorable, she said. It has to be, Dr. McNair answered with conviction. He spent the weekend making plans. They'll probably assign me a machinist and a couple of electronics experts from the hill, he told Alice. I can use graduate students for work with the animals. 
I hope they give me Dr. Munitz from Psych as a consultant, because I like him much better than Virhoff. By early spring, we should have things rolling. Monday at three o'clock on the dot, Dr. McNair knocked on the door of the boardroom and entered. He was not unfamiliar with it, nor with the faces around the massive walnut conference table. Always before, he had known what to expect. A brief commendation for the revisions in his textbook on calculus for its fifth printing. A nice speech from the president about his good work as a prelude to a salary raise. Quiet, expected things. Nothing unanticipated had ever happened here. Now, as he entered, he sensed a difference. All eyes were fixed on him, but not with admiration or friendliness. They were fixed more in the manner of a restaurateur, watching the approach of a cockroach along the surface of the counter. Suddenly, the room seemed hot and stuffy. The confidence in Dr. McNair's expression evaporated. He glanced back toward the door, as though wishing to escape. So, it's you, the president said, setting the tone of what followed. This is yours, the president added, picking up the neatly typed manuscript, glancing at it, and dropping it back on the table as though it were something unclean. Dr. McNair nodded and cleared his throat nervously to say yes, but didn't get the chance. We, all of us, are amazed and shocked, the president said. Of course, we understand that psychology is not your field, and you probably were thinking only from the mathematical viewpoint. We are agreed on that. What you propose, though, he shook his head slowly. It's not only out of the question, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to request that you forget the whole thing. Put this paper where no one can see it. Preferably destroy it. I'm sorry, Dr. McNair, but the university simply cannot afford to be associated with such a thing even remotely. I'll put it bluntly because I feel strongly about it, as do the other members of the board. If this paper is published or in any way comes to light, we will be forced to request your resignation from the faculty. But why? Dr. McNair asked in complete bewilderment. Why? Another board member exploded, slapping the table. It's the most inhuman thing I ever heard of. Strapping a newborn animal onto some kind of frame and tying its legs to control levers with the intention of never letting it free. The most fiendish and inhuman torture imaginable. If you didn't have such an outstanding record, I would be for demanding your resignation at once. But that's not true, Dr. McNair said. It's not torture, not in any way. Didn't you read the paper? Didn't you understand that? I read it, the man said. We all read it, every word. Then you should have understood, Dr. McNair said. We read it, the man repeated. And we discussed some aspects of it with Dr. Verhoff without bringing your paper into it, nor your name. Oh, Dr. McNair said, Verhoff. He says experiments, very careful experiments, have already been conducted along the lines of getting an animal to understand a symbol system, and it can't be done. The nerve paths aren't there. Your line of research, besides being inhumanly cruel, would accomplish nothing. Oh, Dr. McNair said, his eyes flashing. So you know all about the results of an experiment in an untried field without performing the experiments. According to Dr. Verhoff, that field is not untried, but rather well explored, the board member said. Giving an animal the means to make vocal sounds would not enable it to form a symbol system. I disagree, Dr. McNair said, seething. My studies indicate clearly. I think, the president said with a firmness that demanded the floor. Your position has been made very clear, Dr. McNair. The matter is now closed. Permanently. 
I hope you will have the good sense, if I may use such a strong term, to forget the whole thing, for the good of your career and your very nice wife and son. That is all. He held the manuscript toward Dr. McNair. We hope you enjoyed listening to the sample chapter from Supernovas. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.